From the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth. A worldly story told by a group of travellers. A history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's four, 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 triple, triple, triple Z. Welcome to episode 11 of Radio in Colour, a documentary series about four triple Z and the world in which it has lived for the past 40 years. My name is Kim Stewart. We look today at societies in flux, of people's struggles to change unjust power structures and the hurdles they met in what will be our last episode on the 1980s. Looking back, the 80s now look rather like a hinge in Australian history, a moment of transition between old and new ways of living. The sexual and gender revolutions that commenced in the late 1960s continued to reverberate through public and private life in the 1980s, but old masculinities remained in the bedroom as well as in the boardroom and women had barely begun their conquest of the commanding heights of politics, society and culture. We find rumblings of change in the struggle against apartheid in South Africa for Indigenous rights at home and the assertion of the gay community during the AIDS crisis. But first, we go to our First Peoples and their fight for justice. Talk of conservation, keep the 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people seem to be slowly showing political gains. Just eight years before that, Labour Prime Minister Gough Whitlam handed back Gurundji land to Vincent Lignari and his people in the Northern Territory, and laws were finally passed prohibiting racial discrimination in Australia. The Liberal Prime Minister who succeeded him, Malcolm Fraser, proved to be surprisingly moderate and upheld the laws while redrafting another from the previous government aimed at giving land rights to traditional owners in the Northern Territory. But Aboriginal activists weren't prepared to sit on their laurels just yet. Under pressure by the Aboriginal movement, the Hawke Labor government that swept into power in 1983 promised a national land rights system so traditional owners in New South Wales or Queensland or Victoria could do the same as their Northern Territorian cousins. The mining sector was outraged and pushed back hard against the idea, with the support of the Western Australian Labor Premier, Brian Burke, who appeared to have little sympathy for Aboriginal legal claims. What followed was a vicious campaign in which Western Australians were warned of the danger of Aboriginal people fencing them out of their own homes. Do you know that as a Western Australian, you're a part owner of your state's mineral resources, but very soon your right of ownership could come under threat. Through Aboriginal land claims, your right of access to up to 50% of Western Australia could be taken away. The power of veto could also prevent mineral exploration and deny your right to benefit from the royalty payments. The mining industry believes that no Western Australian should be made an intruder in their own state because land rights should always be equal rights. I would characterise it as one of the most despicable political exercises. It's been my misfortune to witness in Australia. It was saying things about Aboriginal people, their hopes and their aspirations, where the only equivalent I could think about would be the sort of Nazi race propaganda which was directed against the Jews was a disgrace to the mining industry. Then Federal Aboriginal Affairs Minister Clyde Holding giving his views on the anti-land rights campaign at the end of that clip from ABC documentary series Labor in Power. Beaten back but not beaten down, the movement continued to press its claims with the more sympathetic federal government. Historian Frank Bongiorno has chronicled black and white relations of the 1980s and says while there were many political setbacks, Social relations and cultural exchange grew over the decade. Labor, when it came to office in 1983, was promising a national land rights regime, and that failed. The attempt of the Labor government to do that produced a backlash, particularly in Western Australia. The uh, Premier of Western Australia, Labor Premier Brian Burke, um, was particularly hostile to the idea of national land rights. The key interest group was the mining industry, which ran a campaign against Aboriginal land rights in 1984. And uh, the government um, fairly quickly abandoned the idea. It believed that it would incur too great an electoral cost. And that was seen at the time and is still seen, quite rightly, as, as a betrayal of a promise that, that the government had made to Aboriginal people. The government did uh, hand back Uluru to Aboriginal uh, custodians in 1985. And that was certainly a tangible achievement of that period. But there, there is a sense of betrayal over that. And then again, I think, over the late 1980s promise of a treaty, which again uh, the Hawke government and Hawke himself promoted during that period and, and, and again without effect. It too produced a kind of backlash and uh, was strongly opposed by the coalition parties of the day. 
It's not a, a particularly happy period if you're looking at the issue of land rights. There was some land rights legislation at the state level that resulted in land going over to Aboriginal people and being controlled by Aboriginal people. But certainly the national picture isn't a terribly happy one. On the other hand, there's a real a revolution really in the relationship between black and white Australians in the 1980s. Um, I think a lot of white Australians became much more aware than they'd ever been before of uh, Aboriginal culture. I mean, this is the period, for, for instance, of Sally Morgan's My Place, you know, a very successful memoir and, and family story by a Western Australian Aboriginal woman that, you know, was produced by a very small press based in Fremantle um, in Western Australia, but became an international bestseller and was translated into dozens of languages, taught in the schools. And I think that sort of story... Uh, spoke to many white Australians, really, and, and educated them about at least a, a certain kind of Aboriginal life. There were other successful memoirs, too, of that period. Um, it's a, it's a, a period in which Aboriginal literature, I think, developed very widely. Aboriginal design figured prominently in fashion. Um, one thinks here of Jenny Key's designs of the 1980s. So I think it's a period where the whole question of Aboriginality is is becoming much more central to the ways in which Australians are thinking about their own culture and their own place in the world. Um, so, you know, for all the hostility to Aboriginal land rights, I think there is a, a real cultural transformation going on in that period. And the, the, the bicentenary of 1988 was clearly the climax of that period and developments where it was impossible to ignore the whole question of Aboriginality in the context of 1988. After all, it was marking the coming of white people to Australia. And so the bicentenary, I think, a real turning point, actually, in the ways in which black and white Australians related to one another. I mean, it was anticipated as being a very divisive occasion, a very divisive anniversary. And it was in some ways, but it, it, it also, I think, um, revealed a great deal of common ground, which I think surprised a lot of people. There was a great deal more I guess sympathy to an Aboriginal perspective on Australian history. It was becoming much harder to just talk about, you know, the white pioneers and, and a settlement history without actually looking at the other side of the frontier and, and actually taking account of Aboriginal perspectives and what European and British settlement in Australia had meant for them. Tropes of Australian nationalism like Australia Day were being questioned and Aboriginal leaders urged supporters to look long and hard at their nation's history. Long-time activist Bob Weatherall, who among other activities has been campaigning for years to have Indigenous remains returned to ancestral lands, spoke to 4 Z in 1985 about what Australia Day means for Aboriginal people. I don't think it's right that Aboriginal people should pay any part within Australia Day because we don't have a position in Australia Day. The only things that are, are relevant to Aboriginal people at that time is that the massacres and the murders that occurred the poisonings to Aboriginal people, the removal of Aboriginal people onto reserve lands, apartheid laws, no no rights, no culture, the culture being uh, turned into Christianity, those sort of things. Um, I think the people who were going to participate in those sort of um, activities at Australia Day better think twice about it, um, their political beliefs and um, their black consciousness has to come right out and they really have to sort of consider whether they are in tune with the rest of the community of Australia who reject Australia Day. I think white people should think seriously about whose land it really is. What rights do Aboriginal people really have in this country? They must think about things, the conditions and the situation that they themselves have put Aboriginal people in. Now they may be capitalists who have tasted the lovely fruits of comfort and prestige that sort of thing, and uh, they have um, caused much racism within the community throughout Australia. And by way of doing that is that they put the Aboriginal people in situations where they became the slaves and the working class for them people to have the prestige and the comfort. That same year, Ross Watson, a leader of the massive Aboriginal protest against the 1982 Commonwealth Games in Brisbane, asked European Australians to consider the civilizational achievements of the first Australians before white settlement. Some of the traditions of our society are things that are, some of them are, are quite recognisable and visible to colo the colonial mentality. Things like consensus where people make decisions by common agreement. About 
not having prisons and, and armies and things like that. I think that, again, is a, perhaps the uh, degree of the civilization achieved by Aboriginal people, that we didn't need to maintain our society by any sort of, uh, any sort of army or, uh, or, or prisons or that sort of thing. I think the fact that we were able to live that way and, and in very, very stable societies, the borders of the three to five hundred different tribes in this country, those borders were stable and secure for thousands upon thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And I think that's again is something that the colonial mind finds hard to hard to understand with its own history of warfare. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at the planet now as something like forty something odd wars going on at the present time, I think that's uh, that's enough proof of, of what I'm saying, that our culture was civilised to quite a higher degree than what many people realise at all. This also points, I think, to the way of thinking or the perspective of, Aber- of Aboriginal people. The dynamics in the society between people and between groups was not one of competition. And the competition that was there had very uh, secure safeguards in law to prevent competition escalating to conflict and conflict escalating to violence and violence escalating to warfare. I think the coming back to that dynamics between people and and groups in our society, rather than that dynamic being a a competitive thing, it it was a thing of harmony, of cooperation. And that's especially visible just looking from the time our people lived in this land to the state of the country itself when the invasion uh, began. There was so little destruction to the physical environment that I think that indicates very clearly that our people were were very much in harmony with the land. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we didn't have to maintain the armies or or prisons or that sort of thing uh, also indicates that between people there was a very high degree of harmony. Coming to the end of the decade, it seems the perfect opportunity to bring these issues to light presented itself. The 1988 bicentenary of European settlement was being planned as a grand celebration of Australian progress and pride. But for the first people, it was a chance to talk about the cruel and inequitable basis upon which the country was founded. At the same time as bicentenary events were being planned in Sydney, different kind of celebration was launched in Queensland. Expo 88 was designed to put Brisbane and Queensland on the map. Years in the making, it was a pet project of long-running Premier Joe Bielke-Peterson. But as historian Jackie Ryan explains, it almost never came to be. Uh, it was first, first proposed by the, the Whitlam government. It takes that long to get things through the BIE, which is the Bureau of International Expositions, uh, for, for Australia's bicentenary in, 19, in 1988. And when that was suggested, both the Whitlam government and the seceding Fraser government assumed that the event would be held in Sydney or Melbourne because, you know, they're so much fancier and they're more sophisticated and they've got the sort of population that might be needed to sustain a six-month event. Sydney and Melbourne both did various studies and decided that it wasn't financially viable, that they'd be better off investing the money in schools uh, or hospitals. Meanwhile, Brisbane, we had one key instigating figure, uh, James McCormack, who was an architect who'd worked on a number of world expositions starting in 1967 in the Montreal Exposition. And when he was at one in Knoxville, by that time the nature of world expositions had changed a little and they were starting to be used as a redevelopment tool. And having spent a lot of time in Brisbane living here, he thought, well, nobody had really given much thought to the Brisbane River or discovered it except for when it flooded. And the Docklands areas, which were largely run-down industrial slum area, could be revitalised. And, of course, development in the Bjorka-Peterson years, you couldn't couldn't say a finer word in the Bjorka-Peterson years. So he um, tried a few different people. There's Brisbane Chamber of Commerce got behind it, some other architects. Frank Moore, who was a Watsu developer in the Bjorka-Peterson period, got behind it, and he convinced Joe that it would be for the glory of the National Party if there was a big event. Not only that, but all that land could be reclaimed and then the original intention was to put a casino on it afterwards and sell it off to developers. So it was also 
the more cynically inclined thought it was just an excuse to resume all that delicious land for developers after the event, and this was a, a good way to do it. So Brisbane, after the others declined, Joe Bjorkvitesen said, well, we'll do it. And this was, of course, basically a horror show because Bjorkvitesen government was a bit notorious by that time through police state, rumours of corruption, his role in the downfall of the Whitlam government, the calling of a state of emergency to hold a football match. So we were looking kind of like yokels, rednecks. I mean, the southern states tend to like to, to position Queensland as that anyway. So the idea of Australia representing the world through Brisbane was horrific. So Fraser dodged it a number of times, but he was actually away on leave with a sore back when in beautiful Bjorkvitesen, Queensland government tradition, Frank Moore got word of it and sent a fax to the acting Prime Minister, uh, National Party stalwart Doug Anthony, and got Expo signed off while the Prime Minister was away sick. So Fraser, who would never have allowed Brisbane to host this, so it was only because he was away ill that Brisbane got it at all. And while designated as a bicentenary event... It was largely shielded from the political furor that surrounded the national celebrations. Expo 88 was a bicentennial event. It ended up being the the key bicentennial event, but it had very little to do with the events planned by the Australian uh, Bicentennial uh, Association. Well, it was the 29th of March 1988. Expo was about to start during the Sunshine State. City was excited, the crowd just could not wait. Nothing could prepare them for the fate that did away. I first heard about it from a paper in the shop. It said Cyclone hits Expo and destroys the fucking lot. Yeah, Cyclone hits Expo. Hits the very spot. Cyclone hits Expo and destroys the fucking lot. There was, in, in some ways, it was protected a lot from all of the controversies surrounding that. because you had a lot of pressure, pressure groups with the Australian Bicentennial Authority. Uh, they were, um, you know, saying it's it's too focused on Britain's history, but other groups were saying it, it's not multicultural enough and should it be living together or should it be the Australian achievement? So there are all sorts of various pressure groups insisting various messages get out. Expo is in some ways protected from all of this because they didn't care. It was a bicentennial event almost in name only. And so they, they didn't have the Australian nationalism. They had the Bjorka-Peterson Queensland type nationalism. It was about we'll show the world, which basically meant we'll show Sydney and Melbourne or we'll show Australia that we can do this. So, you know, you had Sir Lou Edwards trying to convince Australia otherwise. He was trying to be very inclusive, but that wasn't really in Bjorka-Peterson's nature. He, he was a Queensland patriot rather than a, an Australian patriot. So, and in some ways, it actually made it the most accessible bicentennial event for Indigenous Australians because obviously there's a lot of reasons to not celebrate the bicentenary for the original Australians. And there was a split with the pressure groups there. Like there was, so you had some ad- Aboriginal activists such as Bob Weatherall saying you shouldn't go anywhere near Expo 88 because it's a bicentennial event, so you shouldn't be protesting. But then you had other key Aboriginal figures such as Ujuru Nukul, uh, who, who had changed her name from Castle Walker the previous year in protest against the Bicentenary and Celebration. But she wanted to participate in Expo 88 and thought that other Aboriginals should because she viewed it as an opportunity to show Aboriginal skills and culture to the world. So she thought there were more important things, the politics at play there. And it was largely an apolitical event just because the agenda of the Expo Committee was just not not aligned with the Australian Bicentennial Authority. Their theme was leisure in the age of technology. It was it was about consumption. It was about celebration. But it didn't it didn't have it didn't really pick up on any uh, bicentennial themes. That was mostly left to the national pavilion. So the the Australia pavilion actually had Adrian Nicol and her son Cabal's the Rainbow Serpent Theatre as the key event in the, in their whole pavilion. So. The Queensland experience was different. That was National Party. It was the Commissioner General of that pavilion. So that was more about that outback experience, mostly white Queensland male rural experience. But there was enough representation in the rest of, of Expo 88. So we had a lot of program managers going out of their way to program Aboriginal content. You had people like uh, Mike Mullins, who was a parade producer, uh, sneaking the Aboriginal flag into the the sun that led the parade every day. So he had a, he had the Aboriginal flag sneakily leading the parade every day. They had performers like Circus Oz, who flew the Aboriginal flag at their performance and used their performance to deconstruct the bicentenary a little. So there was a lot of sneaky protests going on with within Expo as well. There, there were some comments that that some of the that definitely the best thing in the uh, Australia Pavilion was that, and which because you know the other things were 
what, um, lamington eating competitions and, and, and pie races and smudging Vegemite on your feet and running in thongs and that. So so one local wit suggested that lucky that we did have the Rainbow Serpent Pavilion because it proves that um, Australia otherwise has no culture of its own. The 1980s coming to an end and so many disappointments piling up, Aboriginal people could no longer be under the illusion that the government and Prime Minister Bob Hawke in particular were their hope and saviour. Hawke's announcement ultimately unfulfilled that there would be a treaty between the government on behalf of all Australians with the Aboriginal people was the last in a long line of grand empty promises made that decade. Back in 'ndi there singing about the treaty that never came to be. But not all political struggles end in disappointment. While Australia's indigenous people are still agitating for greater political rights, the original inhabitants of South Africa eventually won equal political status in 1994. That's not to say that everything has been rosy for them since then, with black unemployment still high and their economic status still low. In the 1980s, the African National Congress was still banned and Nelson Mandela was still in jail. We look now at the campaign to end apartheid waged in South Africa and around the world. Stone throwers. Now they call us. But how else could we curb the burning desire within us to inflict a wound on the enemy? A wound, however small. 
Today, South Africa is a growing regional power increasingly influential in world affairs. But for most of the 20th century, it was regarded as an international pariah, known for its discriminatory policies and racial atrocities. Rejoicing as we destroyed the symbols of oppression. Power! It's just over eight years now that hundreds of black school children were gunned down by South African police in the township of Soweto. On June the 16th, 1976, they gathered in the streets to protest the compulsory introduction of Afrikaans as the official language to be used in all black schools. The protest was also against the entire so-called Bantu education system, which neatly complements the apartheid practices of the South African government. The uprising spread throughout the country and hundreds more were killed by police, wounded or jailed. The international community was shocked and the government condemned by the United Nations Security Council. But eight years later, how much has changed? Most people know that South African blacks are still denied human rights as basic as the right to vote, the right to an equal wage and the right to own their own land. And as far as education for blacks goes, it seems that little has changed, despite the Soweto uprisings and the international response. According to African sociologist Fatima Mia, the educational system allows only a small proportion of blacks to manage to matriculate. Over 40% of the African school population leaves school within three years, which means before they have even become literate. This is the first important factor which is linked up. If you are then keeping your people or the African people basically illiterate or semi-literate, you are really maintaining them for very inferior jobs. Then you see when you go up, you find that as you climb up in the educational standards, so the number of or proportion of black children, African children in particular to white, decrease. For instance, we have about 40,000 matriculants each year and 76% are white. So we have a very small number of blacks who matriculate. Actually, since the Soweto uprisings, the education system for the Africans have deteriorated. After that, or during the Soweto uprisings, a number of black teachers were expelled. Some of them uh, resigned on their own because they could no longer cope with the apartheid violence and uh, with the forceful imposition of this inferior education system on the black people. The apartheid regime then hired uh, white soldiers who even up to this day are going from one township to another, heavily armed, dressed in uniforms, and trying to teach students uh, this or the other language. And of course, it is difficult for any child to listen to a teacher who is not only white, but who is also in a military uniform, the same uniform that they saw during the Soviet uprisings and carrying the same guns that were used to kill the fellow students, women and children during the Soviet uprisings, coming into a class to teach in a very intimidating manner. David Narber, a former student at the Medical School for Blacks in Natal, South Africa. The actual statistics concerning education in South Africa also haven't changed in the past eight years. The government spends ten times more money per white child than per black. White teachers are paid higher than black to do the same job. Education for whites is free and compulsory, but for blacks it's not compulsory and they pay. Fatima Mir speaks also of the adverse effects of the apartheid homeland policy. That's the forceful removal of blacks from their residential areas. Because populations are moved from an area where the community has developed and built a school, has managed to get funding, their own money, to find teachers and pay teachers, and then suddenly the area is declared a black spot, or there are so many laws under which they will take away the area simply because they want that land back for some other use for the white community. So the people are then moved, and invariably they are moved into barren areas where there are no amenities, and they've got to start life de novo. There are no schools there. So this is another factor that intrudes into the education of the African child. No more racial struggles. 
No more cultural war. Only That's from a 4 Triple Z special from 1984. The overt denial of equal rights to the original inhabitants of the land under apartheid South Africa gained it the admonition of countries the world over. From 1956 to its final death in 1994, apartheid was the target of campaigners for social justice the world over. Just a year after the broadcast you heard just before was aired, a state of emergency was declared in South Africa. It came just a couple of years after the African National Congress began to openly engage in armed warfare against the regime. The Congress was labelled as a terrorist organisation by the nationalist government, a label that stuck in the minds of many around the world at the time, including Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Then-president of the ANC, Oliver Tambo, didn't shrink from the accusations when he addressed the National Press Club in Canberra in 1987 while in exile. Instead, he asked those present to consider why the Congress would be driven to use violence in response. Madam Chair, you have correctly said that the ANC is portrayed as terrorist. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a great deal that has happened these past nearly 40 years in South Africa which has nothing to do with the terrorism of any opponent of the apartheid system. There's a great deal that is happening today, which reduces that terrorism into a minor, negligible, inconsequential incident. It is apartheid which is terrorizing not just the people of South Africa, not just the blacks. And there is a state of emergency in South Africa today. It has virtually been there continuously since July 1985. It's going on to two years of a state of emergency directed against the blacks principally. It has now manifested itself in a clamp down on the press, the worst the country has known throughout its history. The terrorism of the ANC is an allegation made as part of the defenses aimed at securing the survival of apartheid. This terrorism is defined as involving the ANC killing civilians and, of course, the notorious necklace. The necklace is not an ANC operation, and that is not what has been meant in South Africa by terrorism. The ANC was supposed to be terrorist before there was any necklace. Terrorism is a label, and we have come to tell the Australian people to look at South Africa and try and see all that is happening there. The ANC is involved in an armed struggle. Armed struggles involve death. The apartheid regime is involved in defending apartheid by killing civilians, thousands of civilians. But it will say nothing about this. Firstly, because in any case, it would be self-defeating for the regime to announce its own murders. Secondly, because the regime does not believe blacks are civilians, and the impression has got around the world that the blacks that the South African police and army have been killing since 1948 were not civilians. They were just blacks, something abstract, not human beings. The noise we hear about the terrorism of the ANC as a, an organization that's killing civilians is based on that perception of the black man. He, he, is, he is something abstract. He's not a civilian. The children were mowed down in 1976, up to a thousand in a matter of two days, were not civilians. The massacres which have been perpetrated ever since have not been massacres of civilians because the, the victims were black. That is how 
Pretoria sees it. Why should Australia see it that way also? The ANC is in fact, historically, and virtually in terms of civilians, up until the past three years only, <laughs> non-violent. For most of this, for up to 70 years, I would say, to be precise, up to 1983, ANC killed no civilians. In 1983, civilians had happened to be in the wrong place, in a military place, and the ANC attacked. The soldiers were there, the army personnel, there were some civilians. 1983, that was the first time. But what had been happening to blacks? And then that's when this outcry about the terrorism and uh, the, 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 of the ANC arose, seriously. It was terrorism because whites had died. While the Congress were literally fighting apartheid at home, they received support from people around the world. From the late 50s onward, an anti-apartheid movement grew that sought to boycott South African products and have economic sanctions imposed on the regime by Western countries. At the same time, there were huge civil campaigns against apartheid, waged with varying success through the course of its lifetime. An important early step was the adoption of the Sullivan Principles by several large corporations developed by Reverend Dr. Leon Sullivan in 1977. The principles set guidelines for equal pay and treatment companies were supposed to demand for all of its workers as a condition for doing business in South Africa. Then, in 1986, the US Congress passed laws prohibiting new US investment in South Africa and restrictions on loans. Public opposition was seen in stark form during protests of South African sports teams playing abroad. In Brisbane, we saw the bloody Springbok riots in 1971 as evidence of that. Author Jackie French was there when it was happening. After surviving the onslaught from the drunk and violent police at the Tower Mill riots, Jackie returned to the Tower Mill Hotel sometime later and ran into this unlikely supporter. I again was there with the Tower Mill and the police were running there. And I just walked through the line to have breakfast with my father. I'll never know whether the police were just so astounded that a demonstrator would actually, wearing the buttons saying Springboks go home, etc., would actually just walk through their line or whether they had actually been told I was Dad's daughter and um, I knew who I was. I, I really don't know. Mm. Anyway, they let me through. I got into the lift and in the lift were three Springboks and one of them saw my badges, etc., and was very angry. But the captain, I think, I think he was the young man, in fact, who later a movie would be made out of, but I, but I don't know. He, um, he, he was young, he was born. Um, he put his arm around me and he said, you've got to keep doing this. He said, we have to keep playing football so that the world keeps demonstrating. Back home, people care about football and they are watching this. Mm. He said, we will keep playing, but you must keep demonstrating. Thank you and keep doing it. And I realised then that um, things weren't really as clear-cut mm. as I thought that the Springboks, in fact, some of those Springboks were playing football for very political reasons because they knew that by doing it, the world was protesting and South Africa was watching mm. the world protest. And um, the world was not as neatly divided into goodies and baddies as I thought. Mm. Um, I think for Dad too, it was um, he w he was very angry about the demonstrations at the time. He really thought that sport should be separate from politics. I still think that actually that young Springbok attitude was the right one. They should play football, and we should have demonstrated, and um, both. They're playing football and the demonstrations were a very, very powerful, one of mm. the very powerful tools that did end 
apartheid. So um, I think we were both doing what what we should have done. This is no joke. This thing that we are engaged in. When people are no longer sure whether they will be there tomorrow, it is no joke. The anti-apartheid sentiment in the sporting world also grew over time. Dr Tim Eistrope from the University of Queensland takes us through that history. In cricket and rugby, one of the big problems for the South Africans is that those sports played by many different races and teams have people from different ethnicities. The English, the Australians, the West Indians are all obviously Africans um, from and, and Indians who, who were brought there under obviously duress as the product of the slave trade and other things. Mm. Those teams aren't happy to play against a, a nation that has this segregationist policy, particularly the, the, the West Indies, I would have thought, since they themselves have been a product of very similar attitudes mm. uh, in, their, uh, in the origins of the West Indies. Yeah, that's a real problem. And the South Africans themselves initiated this in some regards because they had a policy both in rugby and, and I believe in cricket, although I stand to be corrected, where they wouldn't play teams that had multi-ethnicities. So New Zealand famously toured a rugby team to, um, to South Africa in... Uh, the late 70s and they have a lot of Maori and Islander players in their team obviously they were granted honorary white status which <laughs> is uh, shocking yeah but because of this lots of countries I mean we have some of our best players in in the Australian rugby tradition are the Ellers and the Indigenous Australians Lloyd McDermott who was a Australian uh, rugby player refused to tour South Africa as part of an Australian touring team and in fact switched codes the Australian tour there was in the early 70s and then obviously 71 and 2 was 71 was the um, Springbok tour to Australia which obviously was wildly unpopular amongst, uh, amongst university mm. students and, and, and social movements and unions and other people. You were saying earlier that the South Africa had a policy of not having any black players in their teams and so they wouldn't play against black people unless they gave them honorary white status. It worked the other way too. Did, did some ca countries refuse to play against uh, South Africa? Oh, yes, very much so. I mean, there was a cultural boycott as part of the international campaign against uh, apartheid. You know, it's interesting because, you know, we largely think of these boycotts and these campaigns as stuff that are run by states. You know, states will sanction and uh, and so on and so forth, in, you know, through the UN, through international instruments, um, for, through their foreign policy. But in fact, one of the most powerful vehicles for, uh, for opposition to apartheid were uh, non-government organisations. Um, for instance, the IOC refused to have uh, South Africa at the Olympics for a consecutive Olympic. The, the writers' guilds in in, um, in the UK and America boycotted uh, and wrote scathing letters. And there was a, so there's a cultural sporting boycott of mm. South Africa that's you know much wider and, and operates at uh, non-governmental, um, transnational non-governmental spaces. What do you know about the effect that that uh, censoring of the South African teams had on the apartheid regime? How did the sporting sanctions by other countries affect the apartheid regime? Did it hit home to South Africa? Look, it did. It did. It was one of many things, but it was an important part. Obviously, the economic sanctions led initially through the UN and eventually taken up by just about every uh, major state in uh, in the international system by the late 80s. That had an incredibly important impact and that isolated South Africa in important ways, along with an arms embargo. But the cultural boycotts really highlighted, on the one hand, to South African people that there was an international condemnation of, uh, of that practice shared across multiple sports and multiple countries. 
and on the other hand had a suffocating effect, an isolating suffocating effect on, on South Africa, such that they had no real, in, at least in the cultural and sporting registers, no real international relations. Mm. And, uh, and that you can't underestimate the effect of that isolation, particularly as a proud sporting nation. And we're talking about the Springboks as you know, emblematic, at least uh, for uh, Africana and white South Africans at that time, emblematic of their national sporting uh, prowess. And so to be isolated in that way and not be able to play Eventually, that sport internationally was, so was a big deal. By civil, legal and indeed military attacks, it was progressively dismantled in the early 90s until free elections were allowed to be held in 1994. It was the birth of a new rainbow nation under President Nelson Mandela. But it's not like black South Africans were suddenly elevated to equal status with white South Africans. Since 1994, poverty has continued to blight the black population of South Africa much more aggressively than the white population. Some radical critics like journalist John Pilger even go so far as to say that apartheid didn't die. Perhaps one thing we can say, though, is the lesson of South Africa is the same as that of myriad other oppressive regimes. In the end, they must either change or face their doom. And that's a selective account of the struggles of the 80s. You've been listening to episode 11 of Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Brisbane's Radio 4ZZZ. We acknowledge the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and of our partners in this production team. Radio in Colour is made by a team of young producers from 15 different countries, including Iran, Sudan, Uruguay, Syria and Australia. This episode was recorded at the Edge Studios in the State Library of Queensland, as well as at radio stations 4EB and 4ZZZ. We would be lost without Brisbane's cultural institutions, which have made us all feel very welcome. The Multicultural Development Association of Queensland is a proud sponsor of Radio and Colour. This show is produced by Carolina Caliaba, Kim Stewart and Stephen Regal. Ni Adepoyibi is our sound engineer and Blair Martin is our trainer. My name is Kim Stewart. Special thanks to our guests today... Jackie Ryan, who kindly spoke to us about her research on Expo 88. Author Jackie French, for her harrowing account of the Tower Mill riots. Dr Tim Astrope from the University of Queensland School of Political Science and International Studies. You can listen back to our stories on the 4ZZZ website, 4ZZZFM.org.au. Thanks for listening.